Chapter Fourteen, Part Two of It Happened in Egypt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. It Happened in Egypt by Charles Norris Williamson and Alice Muriel Williamson. Chapter Fourteen, The Desert Diary Begun, Part Two. All this was beautiful, but I wondered painfully if Monny could be happy in spite of the bumps. Now that the desert was taking her. Strange how a disagreeable sensation constantly repeated at the end of a mere bone can change a man's outlook on life. If Monny had come to my camel side and whispered, I found your buried letter, O oh, Menkeeper Ra, behold that bird now flying toward you, it is my ba, my heart or soul bird, carrying the gift of my love. I should with difficulty have prevented myself from snapping out, Thanks very much, but my good girl, I'm in no mood to talk Tommy rot. It was sympathy, kind, friendly sympathy I yearned for, not spoken in words, but given from soft, sweet eyes, as little Biddy had given it when I tore my hands and barked my shins bird's nesting on the rocks a hundred years ago. I think we should have liked the excuse to stop and gaze at the ruinous pyramids of Abu Sir, but the dragoman guides supplied by Slaney urged us on to the great plateau of the pyramids and necropolis of Saqqara. There, on the terrace of Mariette's house, we saw a crowd of Cook's tourists from Bedrashain, and I had some moments of guilty fear lest my secret should leak out, as their dragoman rushed down and warmly greeted ours. But in the throes of rolling off their camels for the first time, the ever-wakeful suspicions of the set were submerged under physical emotions. It's an ill camel that bumps no one any good. I was only too glad to lure my charges away from the danger zone, and luckily it was so early that the influential ones who never lunched until two at home gave the word tombs before food. Girding up its aching loins, the procession allowed itself to be led by me and my dragoman down inclined plains into dark, mysterious warm passages where our lights were wandering red stars. Now and then a face would start suddenly out of the gloom, haloed with candlelight, and in this way Biddy's flashed upon me, starry-eyed. "'Oh, I'm glad to see you,' she whispered. "'Better, and his two tourists are here. I'm afraid.' "'My dear child,' I said soothingly, but not as soothingly as if I hadn't had a toothache in the spine. You may be afraid of better, but hardly of two stout Germans in check suits. "'Not if they are Germans. But are they?' Just now one of their candles almost collided with mine, and his eyes stared so. Then they looked over my head at Monny, who was behind me, and where she is now, heaven knows. Nothing can happen to either of you here, I assured her, and probably our fuss about better is much ado about nothing. We have no evidence. The man who stared at me over his candle has a scar on his forehead, said Biddy. Maybe he got it in that row in front of the house of the crocodile. Maybe he is Burke, and has just come out of the hospital. "'Most likely he is Schmidt, and adorned himself with a wound in a student duel,' said I. "'It's too fresh-looking. He must be over thirty, she objected. But at that moment Miss Hassett Bean loomed into sight, and in the stuffy atmosphere of the tomb felt the need of my arm to keep her from fainting. We did the Pyramid of Unas, dilapidated without, secretively beautiful within. We went from tomb to tomb, lingering long in the labyrinthine mansion of Mararuka, who, ruddy and large as life, stepped hospitably down in statue form from his stella recess, to welcome us in the name of himself and wife. Almost he seemed to wave his hands and say, Look at these nice pictures of me and my family and our ways of life, painted on the walls, our servants, our dwarves, our mountain banks and acrobats, 
our flocks and herds. Sorry there's no refreshment at present on my alabaster mustaba, or table of offerings, but you see I didn't prepare for visitors outside my own immediate circle of cause and vase. Still, as you have come, make yourselves at home, and take pot-luck. I think, when you've examined everything, you'll admit that you haven't a soul-house in Europe to touch mine, which, if I do say it, is the best thing this side of Thebes. Next came the tomb of T, but by this time mural representations of fish, flesh, and fruit began to be aggravating. It would be past two before we could reach our luncheon tent, and somehow it seemed less desirable to feed after than before that sacred hour, though the custom be sanctioned by royalty. "'Another tomb to see before lunch?' groaned Sir John Biddle, when the dragoman firmly insisted on the Apis Mausoleum. "'Oh, darn! Need we? What? Where they buried bulls? I'd as soon see a slaughterhouse on an empty stomach. Lady Biddle and I will go sit in the shadow of our camels.' And they did, nor would they believe the twins' assertion that the dark mausoleum, with its cavernous rock chambers and granite vaults, was the most impressive thing they had seen in Egypt. "'You say that to be aggravating, because we weren't there,' I heard Lady Biddle snap, over the grumbling of the camels. The sky blazed down, and the sand blazed up. The desert was white-hot, with a silver whiteness hotter than gold, and the foreshortened shadows were turquoise-blue. It was heaven to arrive at a miniature oasis, and see the open-fronted, awninged luncheon-tent reflected with its green frame of palms in a clear lagoon, thoughtfully left by the receding Nile.' At the sight of this picture, my popularity went up with a bound. It really was a lovely vision. The big tent, lined with Egyptian applique work in many colors, the porch-like roof extension supported by poles, and in its shadow a white table loaded with good things and guarded by Arab waiters, waving beaded fly-whisks. As we lingered over our chicken salad, fruit, and cool drinks, and lazily watched our camels munching bursim, all our first enthusiasm for these interesting beasts steamed back. The ladies called them poor dears and sweet things, and the men marveled at their calm endurance or the number of their leg-joints. Monny was gay and charming, and looked at me so kindly that I thought she must mean to give a favorable answer to the buried letter. I blessed Cleopatra for the tip she had given, though I wondered what was the humiliation from which I could save her niece. After all, said I, the desert trip's going to pan out a success. But it must have been about this time that the wind rose. It blew Miss Hassett Bean's hat up instead of down, and other hats off, when we had started again, and it blew into our eyes grains of sand as large as able-bodied paving-stones. Also, as we passed through a picturesque mud village which ought to have pleased everybody, it blew into our noses smells which Lady Biddle knew would give us plague." As if this were not enough, the sand-cart nearly turned over in a rut, and Miss Hassett Bean said that she must go home or be left in the desert to die. I had to lead the little stallion before she would consent to go on, and I realized, when I had ploughed through fifty yards of sand, that the manicured snob of a leader was a thin brown hero. By the time I had a mile or two of this, the dark pyramids of Dashur were visible, and I knew that our camp was to be pitched not far beyond. My first emotion was pleasure, my second panic. What if Slaney had forgotten his promise to remove the cook-labels? Since remounting Farag, only the coast-guard camels had names, the baggage camels smelt as sweet without. Monny and I had been bumping along side by side, and she had just said, If I tell you something, you'll never breathe it to a soul, will you? When I saw those pyramids, and was smitten with the fear of cook. 
Never, I vowed, torn between the desire to hear her secret, and to dash ahead of the caravan into camp. It's about Antun, Monny went on. You know I said to you the other night that perhaps I knew something about him? Yes, uh, oh yes. We were within a few hundred yards of the pyramids now. At any instant the camp might burst into sight. You don't look interested. But I am, awfully. You're sure you won't tell? Dead sure. Was that a flag fluttering on the horizon? Well, then, it isn't my business, of course. But one can't help being interested in him. He's such a, such a romantic sort of figure, as you said yourself. And there's something so high and noble about him, I mean about his looks and manners, that one hates to be disappointed. You would have him with us, you know. I know, and, and I'm glad I, we have got him. It's a, it's an experience. I suppose he's rather wonderful. But don't you think he ought to remember that he isn't exactly a prince? He isn't even called Bey. And if he were, it's not the same as being a prince of ancient Egypt. In what way has he presumed on his, uh, near princehood? I believe he has fallen in love with Biddy. By Jove! Let the flag flutter. What flag? Oh, uh, that was only an expression. They use it where I live. Why shouldn't he fall in love with Biddy, when you come to think of it? He's of a darker race. Though he does seem to like us, of course she couldn't marry him. It wouldn't do. Would it? I don't know. I must think it over. Is that all you were going to tell me? No. I suppose it's natural he should fall in love with Biddy. She's so attractive. But the worst part about it is that he has proposed to Aunt Clara. Not possible. Yes, he has. I saw part of the letter, the first part. She's the only one of us who thinks it would be right to marry a man of Egyptian blood, because, you know, she believes she's Egyptian herself, and she's always talking about reincarnations. I don't see that it's such a wonderful coincidence, his name being Antun. It wouldn't be so bad if he were in love with her, but it's Biddy who is always right in everything she says and does, according to him, just as I am always wrong. Aunt Clara is richer than Biddy. I can't bear to fancy that's why he is proposed— it would take away all the romance. "'Don't strip him of his romance yet,' said I, torn again between interest in Monny's incredible statement and excitement which grew with the growing in size of those flags on the horizon. "'You may wrong him. If you saw only the first part of the letter, there could be no mistake. It was in hieroglyphics, and who but Antoon would have written such a letter to Aunt Clara? She asked me to translate it the night she dug it up at Fustat, Doug, and when I'd read as far as Beautiful Queen, Star of My Heart, Be My Wife, she snatched the paper away and put it inside of her dress, saying she'd look up the rest in one of my books. Good heavens! You must have changed places at Fustet. That letter couldn't have been for her. It couldn't have been for anyone else. Beautiful Queen meant Cleopatra. She said so herself. I don't know what she's going to do about it. Do about it? I echoed desperately. Why— and just then my straining eyes saw that on the middle flag in the fluttering row were four large red letters on a white ground. Slaney had betrayed me. Everything depended on getting that flag down before those letters declared themselves to my other eyes. Excuse me, I finished my sentence with a gasp. Monny must have gasped also, as she saw me suddenly dash away from her at full speed of one camel power. But I had no time to think about what she must think. I suppose I must have done something to the steering gear of that camel, which Coast Guard camels do not permit. 
Whatever it was, it got me into the midst of that camp before I could draw breath, but I have a dim recollection of being caught by Arab arms, and seeing suppressed Arab grins, as I melancholy felt to see how far the end of my spine stuck out at the top of my head. "'That flag! Pull it down!' was my first gasp, pointing convulsively to the banner which shrieked, "'Cook! Before they come!' Dazed by my vehemence, several Arabs scuttled to obey the order, but there were too many of them. Each hindered his neighbor, and as I danced about, making matters worse, out pounced our withered chef from the kitchen tent. "'It was he brought that flag, wrapped round something,' exclaimed one of the men in Arabic. When he saw that we had other flags, but none of Cook, he gave it to us to put over the biggest tent, because he thought it shameful to have no flag of the master's. "'Cook isn't the master, I'm it,' I burbled with a leap to catch the tell-tale square of white as it reluctantly came down. But I was too late. Sir John Biddle and Harry Snell, the newspaper man, came galumping up on their camels before I could stuff the flag in my pocket. "'What's the matter?' they asked, as their animals squatted to let them down. "'Were you run away with? What are you so mad about? Hello, what's that flag? C-O-O-K!' "'It should be over the kitchen tent,' I heard myself explaining. "'Don't you see?' cook. It's the cook's special flag. He brought it himself, but these chaps went and flew it over the dining tent in place of the Union Jack. That's why he and I are mad. And I thanked all the stars on Monny's tent flag that none of the set understood Arabic. After this, how could I hope to explain to Monny that the hieroglyphic proposal was mine, and that she, not Cleopatra, ought to have dug it up? She isn't a girl used to having men run away from her, on camelback or anything else, so naturally she thought me a rude beast and showed it. Besides, even if I dared, I should have had no chance to straighten matters out, for, though the flag episode was after all no fault of Slaney's, there were a few little things which had escaped even his Napoleonic memory, and it was only by combining the feats of an acrobat with those of a juggler that I saved my reputation during the next half-hour. No sight could have been more beautiful in our eyes than that village of white tents in the waste of yellow sand. Our wildest imaginings could have pictured nothing more perfect, more peaceful. Tea was ready, in the huge dining-tent, where folding chairs were grouped round a white-coloured table. The floor of sand was hidden with thick, bright-coloured rugs, and it was finding T.C. and Son on the wrong side of one, which Miss Hassett Bean's foot turned up, that filled me with renewed alarms. Hastily I laid the rug straight, placed a chair upon it, and persuaded everybody to have tea before inspecting their bedroom-tents. While they drank draughts and dabbled jam on an Egyptian conception of scones, I hurried like a haggard ghost from tent to tent, seeking the forbidden thing. Cook on the backs of the little mirrors hanging from the pole-hooks. Will it wash off? Cut it out with a penknife. Down on your knees and tear off the label from the wrong side of another carpet. Memo. Must do the one in the dining-tent when the people are asleep for the night. Cram three cooked towels into my pockets. Hastily pin a handkerchief over the name on a white bent of tent-wall. Must have it cut out and patched with something later. Shall have to pay damages when I settle up with Slaney. Lady Macbeth wasn't in it with me. All she needed was a little water. I have to have pens and pen-knives and pockets all over the place. I didn't get any tea, but that was a detail. And everybody was so delighted with everything that my spirits rose, despite a snub or two from Monny, for which Biddy tried to make up. People took desert strolls, or sat on dunes, and gazed into the sunset which couldn't have been better if I had turned it on myself. Along the western horizon ran a pale flame of green, blending with rose, 
rose blending with amethyst, and in the distance the pyramids of Dashur burned with the red of pigeon-blood rubies. The wind had died among the desert dunes, and it was not till after dinner that any one realized the arctic fall of the temperature. It was too cold to enjoy playing bridge or any of the games I had brought, and the only hope of comfort was in bed. People said good-night to each other in the comparatively warm dining-tent, and then gave surprised shrieks or grunts, according to sex, at the piercing cold. Several of the elder ladies fell over tent-tropes, despite the large lanterns illuminating the desert, and had to be escorted to their bedroom tents and soothed. After this silence reigned for a few minutes, and I had stealthily begun to work on the biggest rug-label, when arose a clamor of voices, and presently appeared the dragoman lent by Slaney. Eight ladies wishing hot-water bottles, he explained. But there were no hot-water bottles. We had thought of everything, it seemed, except hot-water bottles. I tell them very sorry, but can't have, Yusuf suggested, looking pleased. Let me think, I groaned. What about the mineral water bottles we emptied at lunch and dinner? Let the cook boil water, and we'll supply the bottles. This was done, and I was proud of the inspiration, with the pride that comes before a fall. When I began to write, in my bedroom tent, wrapped up in all the blankets of the bed that should be Anthony's, I had the place to myself. But about midnight a head was unexpectedly thrust through the door-flap. It looked ghostly in the haze of color made by the gorgeous applique-work of high roof and octagon walls, which gave an effect of sitting at the bottom of a giant kaleidoscope. "'Who's that?' I hissed, in a whisper meant to be discreet, but which roused a camel or two in the ring outside the tents. "'Biddle, Sir John Biddle,' replied the head, "'I saw your light, and remembered that you had your tent to yourself to-night. Those hot-water bottles have been leaking. There's one, at least, gone wrong in most of the ladies' tents.' The married men have given their beds to the girls who are drowned out. "'Twas your idea about those bottles, wasn't it? I expect you'll hear from it in the morning. Three of us want to come and camp in here with you.' "'All right,' I sighed, with a sinking heart. "'I like sitting up, and you can toss for the cots.' At this moment Sir John Bill reposes in one of them, General Harlow in the other. These gentlemen were so affected with the cold that they went to bed in their clothes, then got up to put on their overcoats, then got up again and put on their hats. On the floor lies a certain mills of Manchester, rolled in all the rugs, except one which I have on, after surrendering my blankets. He has his head in a basket to keep off the icy draught, and in the ruggy region of his spine, as he rests on his side, are the letters C-O-O-K. I wonder if I could rip them off without waking him up? End of chapter 14, part 2